Well, I've already read to you 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 to verse 43. So let me begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray You'll open Your Word to our hearts and give us Your insight and understanding of how this passage of Scripture even applies to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week I preached on the previous passage of Scripture that explains Solomon's fall. We saw that Solomon violated the laws of kingship, which God recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. And that is, the law of kingship was that the king to come was not to collect gold for himself, horses for himself, or wives for himself. Well, Solomon does all three. He collects gold, so much gold that he falls for the love of money. And the amount of gold he collected, it says, was 666 talents of gold. And that number is the mark of the beast, a demonic, satanic number that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 13. And that's mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, the, the number 666. So Solomon has reduced himself to a type of beast, to uh, apostatizing from God at this point in his life. And secondly, he accumulates horses, so much so that he boasts in the proud power of life and entrusting his own defenses and not God's defense. And then he accumulates a thousand women to himself and commits sexual immorality with them and even worshiping their false gods. Now, God observes all of this, and the Scripture mentions that God sees all this after the Lord had appeared twice to Solomon. The first time God appeared to Solomon was in chapter 3, and God said, ask me what I'll give you, and Solomon asked for wisdom, we saw that. The second time God appeared to Solomon was in chapter 9, and right after he built the temple. And the Lord said to Solomon, if you and your sons at all, God warned him, if you at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments, my statutes, what I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land. Notice that the Scripture is emphasizing the fact that God appeared to Solomon twice. This is God being a double witness for himself towards Solomon. And this begins to heighten the aggravation or the severity of Solomon's rebellion against God. The first thing I want you to notice today in this context of Scripture is that there are degrees of sin, depending upon how many gifts and graces and responsibilities that are given to the person. This reminds me of our larger, larger catechism, question number 150. It asks this question, are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous or equally bad in, this, in themselves and in the sight of God? And the basic answer is this, no. Not all sins are equally bad in the sight of God. Because sometimes aggravations are added to the sin and it makes it so much worse in the sight of God. The first aggravation about Solomon's sin is God appeared to him twice. And now here's a third time in this passage of Scripture that God appears to him bringing judgment to him. In the larger catechism, it's interesting, I think, I want to point this out, that there's a huge list in the larger catechism about aggravations that can be added to a sin 
that make it so much worse for that person to commit such a sin. The very first list in the larger catechism says this, that if they be of a riper age, meaning this, if a person is older, then even that right there makes their sin so much more aggravating because they should have known better. And then you look at the Scripture proof of where the catechism gets that point that if you're a riper age or older age, your sin is worse. It references 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. It says, For it was when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. Right there is another meaningful <clears throat> um, aggravation that makes his, his fall from grace or his fall from the Lord so especially hard and aggravating in the sight of God. And think about how aggravating it would be. Solomon had more wisdom than all the other kings of the earth, more knowledge than anyone at the time. He was, he was blessed by God more than any person on earth at that time. God spoke to him twice. He was a chosen son of David. He was old at this time in history, in his life. And now he rejects God and goes after other gods. In other words, he becomes an art counterfeit. He is the highest type of counterfeit at this time in history. He goes from being a true son of David to a false son of David. All of his glory becomes a counterfeit glory because now he is rejected to God who gave him all of that. And this passage today will speak about how God will bring judgment on Solomon the counterfeit. Now the simple point of that long passage I read to you earlier is this, that God raises up three counterfeits to bring judgment on Solomon the counterfeit. In this passage, basically, God is saying this. Well, Solomon, you want to be a false Israelite? I will raise up some false Israelites against you. Some counterfeit Israelites. Now, my basic two points I want to talk about today. First of all, I want to point out how this passage presents three counterfeits. And secondly, I want to show you there's a pattern of how God uses counterfeits in His judgments. Let's look at the three counterfeits in this passage. There's three enemies that God raises up here in our passage today. The first enemy counterfeit, his name is Hadad. He's an Edomite, and he's a descendant of Esau. And here's how the Bible is presenting him, and why, when I read this earlier, thinking, why is all this information in here? about his history and his personal history, where he's born, where he's raised, and he goes down to Egypt, and he comes back from Egypt, comes back to the promised land. I'm sure y'all catch it. The point is, Hadad's personal history is a mirror reflection of Israel's history in the book of Exodus, and, in Genesis and Exodus. Here's some quick points about this summary of this man's history. Hadad is carried to Egypt as a boy for refuge. This is a mere reflection of Jacob taking his family to Egypt for refuge in the book of Genesis. Hadad is treated very kindly by Pharaoh. Pharaoh gives him a house, gives him bread, gives him land. Just like Jacob's family was treated very kindly by Pharaoh there in the book of Exodus. Hadad marries into the Egyptian royal family. 
Joseph even married the daughter of an Egyptian priest. Hadad's son is born and raised up as one of the sons of Pharaoh. You see that reflected in Moses. Moses was raised up in Pharaoh's house. And then Hadad, he seeks to leave Egypt. And he uses Exodus language before he leaves Egypt. He tells Pharaoh to send me out. And that's the same thing that Moses would tell Pharaoh later in the book of Exodus. Let my people go. Send us out. So Hadad the Edomite is a counterfeit type of Israelite that God's raising him up to become an enemy of Solomon. The second enemy used by God and raised up by God is another counterfeit of another time in Israel's history and it focuses on David. His name is Rezon. Rezon, he fled from his master. That's his personal history. Just as David, remember David? He was threatened by King Saul and and he was a good servant of Saul but he had to flee away from Saul. And then whenever Rezon left his master, what did he do? Rezon gathered a band of men to himself and became a leader of, the, of, that, of that group of men. Same thing. David, when he fled from King Saul, he had a band of men with him, became a leader of that men, those men. Rezon also became king in Damascus, which is north and over Syria. He moved to Damascus, became king of Syria. That's north of Israel. And the same thing, David, what he does, he comes from the wilderness and becomes king. He's enthroned in Hebron. And he comes down and becomes king in Jerusalem. There's a mirror reflection of this counterfeit, Rezon, with the life of David. Then moving forward, there's a third counterfeit. His name is Jeroboam. Here's the parallels of Jeroboam and the life of David and Saul. Jeroboam in this passage is called a valiant warrior, just as Saul and David were also valiant warriors at at certain times in their life. Jeroboam was a faithful servant of, of Solomon, and David was a faithful servant of Saul. Jeroboam, he meets a prophet in Shiloh, and that prophet declares him to be the next king. Samuel is a prophet from Shiloh, and Samuel is going to declare he declares David as the next king. Jeroboam tears up a new cloak symbolizing that the kingdom will be torn from Solomon. And the same thing, whenever it signified that King Saul lost the kingdom, a robe was torn. Jeroboam is announced as the next king. And what does Solomon try to do? Solomon tries to kill Jeroboam. Whenever it was announced that David would be the next king, Saul tried to kill David. And also the promises given to Jeroboam are very similar made to the promises given to David. I give you those bullet points very briefly simply show you this. Hadad, Rezon, and Jeroboam are all counterfeits that God's going to raise up in His difficult providence and bring them against Solomon as forms of judgment. Let me pause right now and paint for you the picture if you look at the map. There is a counterfeit south of Israel, the Edomite, that is Hadad. There's a counterfeit north of Israel, that's Rezon, the king in Syria. And there's there's a counterfeit within Israel, that's Jeroboam. When you look at this, 
and the structure of the enemies. It's like God is a general planning a war against Solomon, especially with the ones in the south and the ones in the north. God could strengthen these enemies so much that you could use the military term, the pincer movement. The pincer movement is known as a, as a maneuver in the military, and it's used throughout history, and it's a very envious position of all generals. Generals would love to get their forces, divide their forces, put them on two sides of the enemy, and bring them together and crush the enemy between them. The pincer movement was used in the Battle of Marathon whenever the Greeks defeated the Persians in 490 B.C. The pincer movement was used by Hannibal in 216 B.C. at the Battle of Cannae whenever they destroyed tens of thousands of Roman soldiers in the battle. Genghis Khan used it often in Mongolia. The Germans used the pincer movement whenever they initially captured France in World War II, and they use it in certain battles. Here, God, like a general, is using the pincer movement, putting two enemies, one in the north, one in the south, and he could, right now, raise them up and crush Solomon, but he doesn't. God is actually patient. Why is God patient? Why is God patient throughout the Bible? Why is God patient with us? Why is God patient with America? Why is God patient with creation? It's because of His covenant promises. In verse 12, God says, Nevertheless, I will not do it in your day, Solomon, for the sake of your father David. Meaning, I made a promise to David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem I have chosen. God respects His promises. He honors His covenant. And therefore, He is patient with Solomon and does not use that pincer movement to, to encircle him, surround him, and destroy him. Let me move on now to the pattern of how God uses counterfeits and even using the pincer movement or the surrounding movement in his judgments. First of all, whenever Jesus Christ suffered for our sins on the cross, he suffered the full judgment of God in our place. And as God often does in His judgments, He uses counterfeit enemies. And here's the counterfeit enemies that are illustrated in Psalm 22. Listen to this. And notice the surrounding, the surrounding language, the pincer movement, how He is surrounded by all these counterfeits. And I'll mention there's four animals that are mentioned in this passage of Scripture. Psalm 22, verse 12. Listen to this. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with, with their mouths like a raging, roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. I have, you have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs, that's the second animal, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones and they stare and look at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far from me. O my strength, my help, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. 
That right there is anticipating the cross of Jesus Christ and how He is going to be surrounded by evil. Surrounded by God pouring all of His judgment upon His own Son in our place. There's four animals mentioned in that surrounding pincer movement there by God. It's the bull, the lion, the ox, and the dog. These are demonic cherubim attacking Christ on the cross. A cherubim is a type of angelic figure. And here they are surrounding Him and attacking Him. They're demonic cherubim because they're counterfeits of the real cherubim. There are four faces, four angelic faces mentioned in in Ezekiel chapter 1 and also in Revelation chapter 6. It's the face of the bull, the face of the lion, the face of the ox, and the face of a man. In the demonic counterfeit, you had the same except for the face of a dog. So all these dog-like demons have surrounded Christ and all of judgment, all of hell is being poured upon Christ in our place. That's how the enemies are assaulting Christ on the cross. Counterfeit enemies. Also, there's a counterfeit within Jesus' own ranks. You know him well, Judas Iscariot. So there, just like Solomon, you can see that there's comparisons and contrasts with King Solomon, the son of David, and King Jesus, the greater son of David. In the latter part of of their earthly lives, both of them were surrounded by enemies within and without. King Solomon had an enemy to the north, enemy to the south, an enemy within Israel. Jesus Christ on the cross has these demonic characters of the bull, the lion, the ox, and the dogs seeking to devour him on the cross, and even an enemy within his own ranks, that is Solomon. But here's a difference. Excuse me, the enemy is Judas. But the difference is this. King Solomon, that son of David, he suffered these enemies because of his own sin. Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, is suffering because of our sin. Our sin was placed upon him, and so he receives the full judgment of God on the cross. And an aspect of that judgment is this pincer movement of surrounding the person with God's judgment of enemies and just giving them over to the enemy. Jesus Christ is given over to the enemy of death, but then Jesus Christ rises to conquer death and defeat it. Of course, there's another pattern how this flows throughout history of God using a surrounding forces, surrounding counterfeits to destroy His enemies. We see this 40 years later after the crucifixion, whenever the Romans came in, Jesus Christ would, in His providence, would bring in the Romans and destroy Jerusalem. He predicted this in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. And notice the surrounding language in His rhetoric. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you'll know it's just it's desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things that are written may be fulfilled. So even in that historical outworking, God uses enemies, counterfeit enemies, to come and surround those that need judgment. You can go on and on and on and on, all these historical events of how God uses a pincer movement or counterfeits, raises them up to destroy those who deserve judgment. But let me bring it down to a personal and more practical level in our conclusion today. 
And that is, often God uses counterfeits even in temporary judgments in our personal lives if we ever become a counterfeit Christian. You think about the book of Proverbs. There's a true wife in the book of Proverbs, and then there's a counterfeit wife. Of course, we know that to be Lady Wisdom is the true wife, and then there's Lady Folly, or the adulterous woman. And I think about Proverbs chapter 22, verse 14. It says, The mouth of an adulterous woman is a deep pit. The man who is under God's wrath will fall into it. So it's a type of judgment whenever a person is given over to adultery. God just gives them over to a counterfeit, a counterfeit wife, not a true wife. And also you see this practically. Sometimes Christians will cut themselves off from Christian friends, cut themselves off from the church, cut themselves off from the means of grace, get angry maybe at God, and they'll surround themselves with a counterfeit community, counterfeit friends, and they'll fill the lives, their lives up with pride, misery, drugs, shame, and often sometimes even poverty. What happens is, is that if you don't surround yourself with the truth, with the means of grace, if you don't surround yourself with Christians, then you're, you're inevitably going to surround yourself with the counterfeit. You're going to surround yourself with something that will devour you, that will seek to subdue you. But this is why in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 23, it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another up toward love and good deeds, not giving up getting together or meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What this means is, uh, children, when you graduate from high school, wherever you go, you have to make a conscious effort to surround yourself with Christians, to date Christians, to try to marry a Christian, someone who has the same faith as you. If you do not, then you are going to suffer some type of judgment, at least temporally speaking, where you surround yourself with the bulls of Bashan, the lions that try to devour you, the ox that tries to gore you, and the dogs that want to eat your flesh. That's that demonic impression there of the judgment of God. Jesus Christ suffered that for you. Jesus Christ suffered that for you so you can surround yourself with light and not darkness. You can surround yourself with the true angels of God, not the counterfeit angels. This is why it's so important to be faithful at wherever you go to, to make a conscious effort to make the right friends and surround yourself with the right people. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for our time together. We give you thanks, Lord, for the glue of the Holy Spirit that glues your people together so that we know that we can see the light of Christ in other people and you form Christian communities wherever your people go so we can grow in grace, grow in the means of grace, and even improve upon our baptisms. In Christ's name, we give you thanks and praise. Amen.